church, if you're going to grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Genesis. We're in chapter 42 this morning. Eight more chapters to go, folks. We're working our way through it. Thanks for hanging in there. Uh, if you're looking at the black Bible in the chair that you're sitting in, that should be found on page 35 and 36. I encourage you to keep your Bible open as we read God's word together. So thankful for the reminder in the songs that we sang and the scriptures that we read and even in the confession of faith this morning, the reminder of the Holy Spirit, what he does. It's, it's, it's a good reminder to know this is what he says he does and then just kind of lean back on that, right? So I pray that he does, that he opens our eyes and works in our hearts even as we consider his word together this morning. I am not the man that I used to be. Can you please forgive me? That's what one man said to a woman 13 years after being charged with sexually assaulting her. Now, if you or I knew the situation, the details, or the man involved, my guess is that we would be suspicious of his claim to have been become a different person. We want to think that people can change, right? But at, often I think that when we're honest, we're skeptical about that because at times we're skeptical for good reason. Sometimes people who claim to have changed haven't changed. Well, the last 30 chapters of Genesis, as we have met Abraham and then his family with Isaac and Jacob and his 12 sons, we have seen a dysfunctional family. We've seen in this family favoritism, envy, polygamy, deceit, murder, prostitution, and betrayal, just to name a few, in this family. And don't forget, this is the family that God has chosen, the family through whom God would raise up a Messiah, that through whom he would raise up a Savior. And yet, if you're like me, after 30 chapters of this, all this sin, all this dysfunction in this family, it might leave us asking, is real change possible? Or is it just that once the die is cast, we are who we are. We're, we have the personalities that we have, and we're just kind of left to say, well, it is what it is. It's who I am. Is change possible? If, if you've been sinned against by a friend or a loved one, can the person who wronged you really change? Or if we look in the mirror and we see sinful habits that are hard to break, we see sin that we're still fighting after years of fighting that same sin, we might look in the mirror and ask, can I really change? Or is it just better for me to accept, this is just who I am, <laughs> give up? Well, friends, the Bible says that God makes his people into a new creation. That's the language the Bible uses. Or Jesus himself says that, that becoming a Christian, he uses the language of when you become a Christian, you are born again. 
That's radical language. That's new creation language. And so when we hear Jesus say that, when we hear God say that in the pages of Scripture, we believe as Christians that real change is really possible, even though that change may not happen overnight. How, though? How does this change happen? Well, we're going to see this, the beginning of this change in Genesis 42. One way to think about Genesis 42 is that Genesis 42 really goes and connects with all the way to chapter 45. So 42, 43, 44, 45 really belong together, but there are also kind of subunits that we're going to look at piece by piece. And we see the beginning of this change in Genesis 42 and how that happens. So if you're taking notes, uh, let's, let's look at God's word in Genesis 42. Scene number one is this, an awakened conscience, an awakened conscience. And this is verses 1 through 28, first scene. So let's look, at, look, let's look at God's word, Genesis 42, verse 1 together. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So, Ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers, and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Let me just pause there for a second. Really, we are introduced to Joseph back in chapter 37, and one of the first things we learn about Joseph is that God gives him two dreams. Two dreams given by God that were pointing forward to his future when his own family one day in the future would bow down before him as their ruler. At the time, he tells his older brothers in chapter 37, and his older brothers are like, "Uh uh-uh, ain't happening. And they scoff at him. They scoff at the idea of him being their ruler, and so they decide enough of this. They throw him into a pit, take his robe of many colors, and and, and they kind of leave him there to die before they sell him into slavery. And we're told that they say, okay, now let's see what comes of the dreamer and his dreams. 20 years pass. We've seen Joseph go into slavery in the house of Potiphar. We've seen him falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and put into prison. We've seen him interpret the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. We've seen him forgotten for two years, only then to be remembered two years later. We've seen him interpret Potiphar's, or Pharaoh's dream, and now he's number two in, all, in, in charge of all of Egypt. 20 years. A lot has happened in 20 years. But during those 20 years of estrangement from his brothers, during that period, there's no evidence of Joseph or his brothers reaching out to each other. 20 years. 20 years is a long time. That's two decades. You wonder, had Joseph given up 
on what God had told him would happen? About his brothers bowing down to him? Had he forgotten it? And then almost all of a sudden, here they are in Egypt. And of all the people they come to, they they come to Joseph and they're bowing down before him. It's then, verse 9, Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. God had been faithful. God had kept his word. Here they are. Now, the brothers, at one point in chapter 37, thought that they could stop God's plan from happening. We'll see what comes of this dreamer. But their efforts to frustrate God's plan was actually the very means that God used to accomplish his plan. (laughs) Friends, Psalm 2 reminds us that nations may rage against God. Nations may try to derail his plan, and we might turn on the news, and we might become really nervous because there are nations right now raging against God, hating God, trying to squash the church, trying to squash the gospel, trying to eradicate the news of Jesus. And, And we see all the things that are happening in the news. We see all the things that are happening around the world, and wars, and threats, and we see nations raging against God, and we may become nervous. But God is not nervous. God is able to use the very rebellion that they have against him and turn it into a tool to accomplish his plan. When God sees the nations raging, he doesn't wring his hands in nervousness. He laughs. He's God. So part of what we see in chapter 42 is a reminder that God is sovereign. God is in control. We've been beating this drum all throughout the text because that's what we see. God gave Joseph, God gave the cupbearer, God gave the baker, God gave Pharaoh their dreams. God raised up Joseph to governor of the land. God caused the famine. That was then the very thing that brought his brothers to him to fulfill the dream that he had 20 years ago. God was doing this. God's in control. God's writing history. history. But we are impatient. We microwave our dinners so we can have it ready in 60 seconds. We love the overnight delivery option for our packages. We like the quick fix. We like the fast turnaround because we don't like waiting. 20 years for this whole thing to develop is a long time. God often has the long game in mind. The last time that Joseph saw his brothers, we're told he was 17 years old. 20 years have passed. Now he's almost 37. At this time, when they, when they bow before him, they don't know who he is. Jo- Joseph is wearing Egyptian clothing. He has a clean-shaven face like the Egyptians did. The, the, the Israelites would probably have big beards, like Paul Stollerick, right? They would have beards. And, 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 and Joseph was speaking the Egyptian language. So they have no idea that they're bowing down to their little brother, that they had betrayed, that they had lied about, that they had sold into slavery. They had no idea. Let's turn back to verse nine, the middle of verse nine where we left off. And he, Joseph, said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. 
They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest is this day with our father and One is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said, you are spies. And by this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested. Whether the truth, whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Again, let me pause there for a moment. So once Joseph realizes these ten men who are bowing before him are his brothers, if, if I'm in his shoes, I imagine it's hard not to blurt out in that moment, oh my goodness, guys, it's me, Joseph. Guess the dream did come true. Where are you at now? When he was 17 years old, he might have done that. But Joseph had grown up over those 20 years in affliction with God's presence. Joseph had matured. Instead of retaliating, what we see is Joseph's heart on display. Look again at verse 18. Joseph said to them, do this and you will live. Why? For I fear God. Judah and the other 10 brothers, they feared man. We've seen that over and over. It's what got them into sin. Joseph, in contrast, feared God. And because he knew God and knew God's love and because he took God seriously and feared God, he was set free to love his brothers. He wanted them to live. We see it in verse 18. We see it at the end of verse 20. I do not want you to die. He wants them to live, which is pretty remarkable when you think of what they did to him. But Joseph doesn't just want them to live physically. I'm going to give you grain, which will sustain your bodies. He doesn't just want them to live physically, but he also wants them to live spiritually. You see, the brothers, they were aware of, they knew the physical danger that they were in because of the famine. But they were oblivious to, they were blind to the spiritual danger that they were in. And so Joseph lovingly sets in motion a plan in order for God to rescue them, for God to not only give them physical life, but spiritual life. Looking at verse seven, Joseph saw his brothers and 
recognized them, but he treated them like strangers. It's interesting here because the word, the Hebrew word for recognized and the Hebrew word for treated them like strangers, it's the same Hebrew word. Both recognized and treated them like strangers are translating the same Hebrew word. So that that word actually shows up, that Hebrew word shows up four times in verses seven and eight. Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize him yet. Why is Moses repeating this idea? Well, in chapter 37, remember, they treated Joseph, their brother, like a stranger. Worse, they treated Joseph, their brother, like an enemy, casting him into pits, selling him into slavery. And so here, after 20 years, the question is, had Joseph's brothers changed? How's he going to find out? If, 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 Joseph, if Joseph just reveals his identity and says, hey guys, are you sorry for what you did? Well, he wouldn't know if they were telling him the truth or not. Don't forget, he's the second most powerful man in the world. So if, if he just asked them straight up, are you sorry? He wouldn't know if their answer would be honest or if it was a lie and them just doing whatever is necessary to save their neck and get out of trouble. So not knowing Joseph's identity, we, they're, 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 uh, they're kind of making their defense to Joseph and their defense in verse 11, no, we're not spies, we are honest men. That's laughable. If they knew who they're talking to, they wouldn't have said that. And so as a metallurgist uses fire to test the purity of a metal, burn away the impurities and what you have is the real thing, the genuine thing, Joseph, like a spiritual metallurgist, sets up a test. He has to hide his identity, but set up a test to determine whether or not his brothers actually have changed. Look at verse 19 again. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified. There's the test. And you shall not die. There's his heart. Again, years ago, they had treated Joseph, their brother, like a stranger, like an enemy for their benefit. They got 20 pieces of silver out of it. They got their annoying little brother out of the way. Joseph's test that he sets up provides a similar scenario where the tables are turned. Once they get back home to Canaan, once they're back home safe and sound, and a second brother, this time we'll find Simeon, waits in prison. Once they're back home safe and sound, will they... Will they, will they just stay in their homeland and do what's good for themselves? Or will they risk coming back to care for their brother this time? We shall see. Friends, as Christians, we know that God has forgiven us. 
We sang about it this morning. And we believe that God has forgiven us infinitely more than any wrong that someone else could do to us in our life, however horrific it might be. Therefore, God in Scripture commands us as Christians to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Ephesians 4.32. But I want to pause here because I think that Joseph's scenario actually highlights an important difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. You see, when they explain what happened to Joseph, not knowing that it's Joseph, they kind of hide behind these generalities, a sense of vagueness. Verse 13, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan, and behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and, uh, well, uh, one is no more. Let's just leave it at that. No more questions. Let's move on. They swept the truth under the rug, and they were self-deceived. Because when they make their defense to Joseph, they consider themselves good, people, church-going folk. Verse 11, we are honest men. They've been estranged for 20 years, but friends, in order for reconciliation to happen between Joseph and his brothers, in order for reconciliation to happen, there needs to be forgiveness. But, this is where this situation raises a question. What if the person who's wronged you doesn't ask for forgiveness? What if they don't admit that they've done wrong? What if they're not even aware of it? Then what do you do? Well, Lord willing, we plan on offering a class this winter in our Disciple Life, our Sunday school classes, a whole class, 13 weeks, looking at this topic of forgiveness. Because we want to dive into the topic of God's word, the topic of forgiveness, and, and be equipped and equip you as a church with God's word on this topic. Because we understand it's a complicated and difficult topic, but it's an important one. But I, wanna, I, wanna, I think it's worth noting here that forgiveness has both an inward and an outward aspect to it. Or as David Powelson once explained, an attitude, there's attitudinal forgiveness and there's transacted forgiveness. Inward or attitudinal forgiveness, same thing, involves us as the offended party talking to God, not the person who wronged us. That's, we're not doing that yet. This is a vertical thing. We're talking to God, not the person who wronged us. It's there that we deal with our own heart. It's there that we deal with the sinful attitudes that we hold in our heart against the person who wronged us. Inward forgiveness, attitudinal forgiveness, protects us from bitterness, from anger, or from becoming a grudge-holding person. And inward forgiveness prepares our heart. It, gets, it tills the soil of our heart. It plows the soil of our heart so that our hearts are ready and willing to forgive the offender if they ever come to us, recognize their sin, and ask for forgiveness. Outward or transacted forgiveness happens if the wrongdoer repents 
or their sin, uh, they repent of their sin, or they seek forgiveness from the person that they've wronged. I, know, I understand this is a lot here, but with true repentance, the wrong is forgiven. And by forgiveness here, we mean that in mercy, that person agrees not to bring up that wrong anymore. And when that forgiveness happens, the groundwork for reconciliation is laid. So, let me try to summarize this. Inward forgiveness, if you're a Christian, inward forgiveness must always happen. No options, it's commanded. We, God commands us to do that. Outward forgiveness may happen. We hope it happens, we pray it happens, but sometimes it's not possible. Inward or attitudinal forgiveness can occur without reconciliation, but reconciliation cannot happen unless inward forgiveness has already occurred. Now, this is a lot to take in. If you wanna think more about this, one book I would commend to you is David Pallison's book, Good and Angry, where he talks about forgiveness and anger and how we can have a biblical response when we've been wronged or we are the wrongdoer. I think it's for sale in the bookstall that you can get it afterwards. Anyways, Joseph has set up this test. And it's interesting, in verse seven, we're told that he spoke roughly with them, right? And after seeing how he repeatedly accuses them of being spies, that word for spies shows up over and over and over in the text. And after putting his 10 brothers in prison for three days, some commentators assume that maybe Joseph's struggling with a little bit of vindictiveness, right? And he's, he's, got a, he's struggling with being vindictive with his brothers. And I'll say it's possible, but I think the context actually suggests that Joseph knows what he's doing. I think the context suggests, the context suggests that Joseph was deliberately playing a part and at the heart of what he's after is their redemption. He wants them to live and not die. So this is an expression of love. And so we see the beginnings of this work of redemption that God is doing in their hearts, the beginning of it, in verse 21. Look with me at verse 21. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against that boy? But you would not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for their journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is it that God has done to us? They're feeling the weight of it. Their conscience has been awakened. 
What is the conscience? According to Romans 2, verse 15, your conscience is the inward faculty that distinguishes right from wrong. It's the inward faculty in you that distinguishes right from wrong. Sometime your, sometimes your conscience condemns you. You're guilty. You know it. This is wrong. You know it. You should be ashamed of yourself. Sometimes our conscience approves us. This is right. This is good. Way to go. Whether you're a Christian or a Buddhist or Muslim or agnostic or atheist, it doesn't matter. Everyone, if you're a human being, everyone has a conscience. But scripture also says that it's possible for us to sear our conscience. It's this image of taking a hot iron and branding your conscience. We can, we can sear our conscience by repeatedly ignoring or suppressing or stiff-arming our moral conscience. We do it long enough, soon our conscience becomes inactive, silent, seared, dead. After selling Joseph into slavery, back in chapter 37, after seeing the grief that it caused their father Jacob, the brothers' conscience no doubt troubled them. What they had done was awful. It was sinful to see their father weep over that. It was awful, and they knew it. And so I assume that in order to sleep at night, they probably rationalized what they had done to their brother. You can imagine them dealing with their troubled conscience right after what happened. Well, Joseph was a brat. I mean, he had it coming. If he just wouldn't have spoken to us like he did, it was his fault. And we wouldn't have a choice. And the longer time had passed since this happened, and their conscience bothered them, you could, tell, you could hear them saying to themselves, you know, I know it was wrong, but what good is it going to do to tell dad now? What good is it going to do to tell Jacob the truth now? It's just going to make it worse. So let's just, let's just bury this down deep. What's done is done. And besides, no one's perfect, right? And so after enough rationalizing and enough suppressing, their conscience became seared where it once condemned them and said, this is wrong, you know this, you need to make this right. Their conscience became silent. So silent that eventually after 20 years, they're able to look in the mirror and say, we're honest people. We're the church going folk. We're good. But after three days in prison, it seemed to jog their memory a little bit. Look again at verse 21. Then they said to one another, I think they're speaking in their native tongue here, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. They're speaking openly in front of Joseph, assuming that he can't understand them, but he understands everything they're saying. Joseph hears everything they're saying. He hears Reuben's defense. I, didn't, I told you not to do this. I didn't want this to happen. And by verse 24, Joseph is so overwhelmed with emotion, he has to leave the room and weep. It was all too much for him. 
As one writer notes, this may explain why we do not pursue reconciliation with some people. Many of us do not want to revisit old hurts after trying so hard like Joseph to forget them and put them behind us. There is a price to pay in revisiting old experiences. Old wounds will be reopened, old aches will throb, many tears will flow. There is no cost, there is no reconciliation, rather, without cost. This process of reconciliation is painful. It's painful for Joseph. It's painful for his 10 brothers. But good thing is happening. The brothers' seared consciences, which had laid silent, dormant, seared by a hot iron of their refusal to listen, they had, it, it had been inactive for decades, now are awakened. They went from saying, we are honest men, in verse 11, to a nervous but an honest confession in verse 21. In truth, we are guilty. We are honest men. No, in truth, we are guilty. So Joseph sends them home with grain for their family so they don't die. He sends them home with grain for their journey. And he also puts their money back in each of their sacks without them knowing it. And when one of them stops to feed his donkey on the way home, he opens up the sack with grain for his donkey and there is his money sack. He thought he had given it to Joseph to pay for the grain and here it is. So the ones who claimed to be honest men now look like they took the grain without paying for it. They're waiting for Joseph and the Egyptian police to just be around the corner. Their conscience is pricked. Their conscience is condemning them. And trembling, they ask in verse 28, what is this that God has done to us? Perhaps for years they hadn't said something like that. But now God is, now God is all consuming in their heart and their mind. What is God doing to them, they ask? Well, God is bringing their guilt into the open. After 20 years of a seared conscience, just imagine you're responsible to evangelize these 10 brothers. After 20 years of a seared conscience, these 10 may have seemed hopeless. They may have seemed like an impossible case. These are the people that we might have given up in our evangelism. Because we've seen what they've done over the last... 30 chapters. And they just seem cold and indifferent to it. And we know they have a seared conscience. We might have moved on from them as a hopeless case. But friends, it's not up to Joseph and it's not up to us in our evangelism to change the heart of those that we love and are sharing with. It's not up to us to bring conviction. It's not up to us to awaken the conscience of those that we love. When we read about what the Holy Spirit does, it's the Holy Spirit the Gospel of John says, who convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment. Not us. And so don't miss what God is doing. God is awakening their conscience. And what's interesting is, rather than ignoring it, they begin to wrestle with it. What are we gonna do next? What do we do with this? Now we see our sin, what are we gonna do? 
Scene number two, moment of decision. Scene number two, moment of decision. This is verses 29 through 38. Look with me at verse 29. When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when, they, and, and, and when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And, Joseph, and, Jacob, and Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that, he, that you are to make, <laughs> you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol, which is the place of the dead. And that's where our text ends this morning. Once the brothers return to Canaan, they get home, and they basically retell everything that had happened so far. They tell Jacob what happened in Egypt. They tell Jacob why Simeon is not with them, why he's still in Egypt. And they tell their dad why they needed to go back and bring Benjamin with him in order to prove their honesty to get Simeon back. But after they retell their stories, they're unpacking their grain, and behold, it's not just one guy that had his money sack. Every man has their bundle of money still in their sack. And so if one meant they were in trouble, 10 means they're in real deep trouble. They see this. They're nervous. Jacob sees it, and he loses it. Joseph's gone. Simeon's gone. And now you come to me saying that you want to take my youngest son, Benjamin, back to Egypt? Listen, every time you leave, I lose a son. No way. No way. Forget it. You're not going back to Egypt. And the text ends. Simeon's still in prison. They're still in Canaan. The question of their honesty is still on the table. The text ends unresolved. From a narrative's perspective, it's really unsatisfying, right? Moses raises his tension, and then he just kind of leaves us there. When we got all these questions, with all their money bags with them, and they're looking like spies, are they going to take the risk and go back to Egypt in order to care for their brother? Or will they treat him like a stranger? 
like they did Joseph. Well, they just take the money and run. Or now that these 10 brothers actually see their sin, now that their conscience is awakened, what will they do? Will they tell the truth? Will they confess? Have they changed? We'll have to wait till next week. We don't know. But I think Moses leaves us in the unknown intentionally. And the, the lack of answers is frustrating for us, but it leaves you and me to sit with the questions. It leaves you and me to actually look in the mirror. Friends, is there something in your past that you hope no one finds out about? Something that you'd rather sweep under the rug, push down real deep, and just move on like, didn't happen? Or are you living a double life today? Friends, whether you're 13 years old, 20 years old, 30 years old, 80 years old, are you living a double life? On the outside, if somebody asks, I'm an honest man, I'm an honest woman. I'm here at First Baptist, I'm at church, I'm a good person. But inside are dead men's bones. Inside is a liar. Who, when they're going through the week, gets drunk, sleeps around, is proud, foul-mouthed, angry, selfish, gossip, greedy, and unthankful. Look in the mirror. Have you changed? Have I changed? Perhaps God has brought somebody like a Joseph into your life and God is showing you your sin through this friend or family member who loves you. But you just refuse to listen. When you've been confronted by a loved one, you've been defensive. You've responded in anger and you just, your conscience has not been awakened because you're not listening. How do you respond when your sin is exposed? Friends, when God, exposes, when God exposes these 10 brothers' guilt, I assume that Joseph's brothers may have felt like God was roughing them up. Not only is Joseph speaking rough to us, it feels like God's roughing me up. What is God doing? And I, they may have wrestled with this question, does God just hate us? Bringing up the past? But friends, listen, if God was only interested in punishing them, if God hated them, then why wouldn't he just leave them in Canaan to die then? He didn't. You see, that wasn't God's plan. From the beginning, God's heart was to give these 10 scoundrel brothers life. And he took their sinful betrayal of their brother and he turns it around and uses it for their salvation. 
They sold their brother for 20 pieces of silver. God uses their betrayal for good. What's that sound like? Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver, the worst of the worst evils ever committed in history, and God turns it and uses it for the greatest good, our salvation. Friends, when life does not go as you had planned, when life is hard, when life hurts, you may wonder, does God hate me? But listen to God's word. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, world that's in rebellion to him, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, will not die but have everlasting life. He doesn't want you to die. He wants you to live. He does not delight in the death of the wicked. He wants you to live. What if the hard things in your life are God's design to wake you up to your need for God? What if the hard things in your life are not God's evidence of his hatred of you, but actually his evidence of his love for you? What if God has you sitting here today at First Baptist listening to this sermon so that you can hear how God loves you and wants you to live? Well, friends, it's one thing to go to the doctor and hear the doctor's diagnosis, but listen, if you're the patient and you don't swallow the medicine, it does you no good. You gotta do something with the diagnosis. You gotta do something with the medicine. Joseph's brothers are at the point of decision. Their conscience is awakened. They see their sin, but they're not changed yet. Feeling bad about our sin is not enough. Change, real change is dependent upon what you do when your sin is exposed. Think about Jesus. When Jesus was betrayed, two of his disciples shed tears of sorrow for betraying Jesus. Judas Iscariot and Simon Peter. But shedding tears does not equal true repentance. You can look repentant and not be repentant. Judas' sorrow was a worldly sorrow, as we read about in 2 Corinthians 7. He got caught, and it led to his death. But Peter's sorrow for denying Jesus three times, his tears was a godly sorrow that led to his repentance and led to his life and led to his his restoration with Jesus. Friends, if your conscience has been awakened, if your conscience is condemning you, if you see your sin, if you're in that moment of decision like these 10 brothers, don't stop there. Whether or not true change is possible for you or I depends on what we do when our sin is exposed. And the difference is what we do with our sin when it's exposed. The difference between Judas Iscariot and Peter is who we go to when our conscience condemns us. In John chapter three, Jesus, the light of the world, said, the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Friends, 
According to Jesus, what do, what do we do when our sin is exposed? According to Jesus, we have two options. You can either hate the light or you can come to the light. You can either hate the light or you can come to the light. You can hide from Jesus, the light of the world, or you can come to Jesus. You can run to Jesus, the light of the world. Now listen, <clears throat> Jesus tells us this. When the lights are turned on, it's, it's hard. Coming to Jesus means having the spotlight put on our guilt, having the spotlight put on our sin. We have to be honest about it. We have to confess it. That's painful. It's embarrassing. And in that moment of the light being shined on our guilt, we are tempted to hide because of fear, because of shame, because of embarrassment. We want to go back in the darkness. Following Jesus, being a Christian means being honest about our sin. Do you hear me? But as scary as that is, as scary and as nerve-wracking as it is to step into the light of Jesus, it is the path to life. If you come to Jesus in faith, you will not find a God who's gonna whack you. <laughs> if you come to Jesus in faith, you will find a king who laid down his life for you. You see, the reason that Jesus calls us to come to him with our sin is so that on the cross, Jesus can take on himself our sin and on the cross bear the penalty for our sin, the wrath of God for our sin, so that we don't have to. Jesus calls us in our shame, shame that comes from our sin, shame that comes from our being sinned against, this shame that leaves us feeling guilty and filthy and dirty, and he cleanses us. But, it's not enough just to know this. We must come to Jesus, come to the light. And the only way to come to Jesus is through repentance, turning away from our sin, doing a 180, and trusting in Jesus. He's a king. And he says in Mark 1.15, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. It's the only way you can relate to a king. Repent and believe. And friends, if you're not yet a Christian, and, and if your conscience has been pricked by the word of God, if your conscience this morning is condemning you, my plea to you this morning is do not harden your heart against the Lord. Don't run back in the darkness because it's uncomfortable. Genesis 42 illustrates that sooner or later, our sin will find us out. We can hide for a little bit, but one day we will stand naked before God and our sin will be exposed. Better to come to Jesus now as a savior than to stiff arm him now only to stand before him later as a judge. Let me draw your attention to the last song. If you're gonna take your hand out, your bulletin, look at, me, look at me at page eight. Our last song is the song, Come Ye Sinners. Let me just highlight a few of the lyrics here. The song actually begins in verses one, two, and three with an, with a, um, an invitation. Verse one, come ye sinners. Verse two, come ye thirsty. Verse three, come ye weary. All right, any sinners in here? Okay, anybody thirsty? 
discontent in here, okay? Anybody weary? This song says, this song is reflecting Jesus' invitation in Matthew 11. Come to me. Come to me. And then in verses four and five and six, it helps point our attention to Jesus and what he did for us. And then the chorus, the the final thing, the chorus is our opportunity. It's our chance to respond to Jesus' invitation. He says, come ye sinners, and then in the chorus we respond. Okay, yes, I will arise and go to Jesus. I will step into the light. Don't just sing this, church. Will you do that? Have you done that? My non-Christian friend, will you do that? I plead with you to come to Jesus. Let's go to him together. Because when we do, we will find that he will embrace us in his arms. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask you, I plead with you that we do not play games with you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us of sin, of righteousness, and of the coming coming judgment. Help us to believe those things, to see those things, and to respond. We pray that your Holy Spirit would not only awaken our conscience, but we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to see that you are good, that we would not run from the light, but by your grace and by the help of your Holy Spirit, that we would run to Jesus, come to Jesus in faith and in repentance, and to know for certain that you embrace us in your arms. Lord, if any of us have sin that we are hiding, sin from our past, sin that we're in right now, Lord, help us to be, rather be embarrassed or do the difficult thing rather than hold on to it too long and stand before you as our judge. Lord, help us to be humble, that, that we'd be able to help each other in our confession. Help, help. Lord, I pray that the, that, the, that the devil would not allow any of us to believe that we're unique in our sin, that no one else sins, I'm just the worst person, and I shouldn't tell anybody this. Lord, help us to remember that we are all sinners, that we're equal at the foot of the cross, and that we can help each other bear these burdens and come to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.